Have you ever gotten into trouble when you were actually doing the right thing? I mean, for those of us that hardly ever mess up, this probably happens all the time, right? You know, when you were called out in school for talking or throwing a paper airplane or whatever it was, but you didn't actually do it, how did you respond? It wasn't me! It was him. There's blame, there's defensiveness. I mean, this, this happens to me, but I'm such a saint. I was in the kitchen last week and I was looking up the recipe that we were cooking for dinner. And I was like, no, I was not looking at the, the, the scores of the game on my phone. I would never do such a thing like that. We get so defensive at the injustice of this. Um, but by the way, I'm gonna let everyone off the hook here. I'm not going to ask the opposite question. Have you ever gotten away with something that you should have been in trouble for? Okay, we'll leave that. That's a different sermon. That's a different topic uh, altogether. But lately, we've been taking a look at different criticisms Jesus faced in his life and in his ministry. And the reason why we're doing this is that his reaction to criticism tells us a lot about his character, about his priorities, his authority, and the mission that he was on. So today, we're going to take a look at a time where he faced criticism from the religious experts of his day and his family. And in this passage, for all of you Bible nerds out there, Bible nerd alert, there is a chiasm in this one, a chiasm. It's, it's Greek, and it's a Greek word for this pattern of stacking ideas. And I just wanted to point this up out to show how brilliant these gospel writers are. So there's three steps that will build up to Jesus's response to the criticisms. And then there's three steps that happen after Jesus's response. And the first three chunks and the last three chunks, they all relate together. And uh, that'll be the, the format for, for our time together today. So I just wanted to point that out there for all of you, you biblical scholars out there, because uh, it's really fun for me. But we'll start in Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So Mark is consistently showing throughout his gospel that people are trying to figure out who Jesus is. The disciples go on this long character arc throughout this whole book of uh, starting out knowing there's something special about Jesus and there's something compelling about him that they follow him all the way to this is the Son of God, this is the Messiah. And Mark loves, if you like action, you're a Mark fan because he loves to show how Jesus's miraculous deeds give him authority. And this, is, this, this passage appears at the, the end of this kind of five scene sequence of all these controversies that Jesus started by healing people, healing people on the Sabbath, healing people that had been set aside and often forgot. And word was getting out. And, and just even in these first three chapters, there's already been a time where Jesus had to get away to recharge, get away from the crowds. I think this says a lot to us right now. Like, how, how busy are we? We have a crowd around us. You're watching this on a device. Some of you are watching this on a device with multiple tabs open. No judgment here. But I was just thinking right off the bat, uh, this is a bonus. 
that if Jesus needed to get away to recharge, if Jesus encountered times where he was so busy, it was hard for him and his followers to eat, how important is it for us to set aside time to care, to take care of our physical needs, but also the needs of our soul? Because Jesus often gets away to rest and recharge. He does it a lot. So we have this big crowd gathering around Jesus. Word is getting out. Miraculous things are happening. The things he's teaching about the scriptures we've never heard before. And as word is getting out, his family finds out. In verse 21, when his family heard about this, they were going to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. My family asks me this often. They say this often about me. How about you? What is he doing? What were you thinking? He's out of his mind. And they're going to take charge of him. Isn't that such a lovely, nice phrase there? And in, in the translation into English, a little bit of this gets, gets uh, I don't know, not censored, but just toned down a bit. This nice little phrase in the original language and other places in this same book of Mark, the same word means to seize forcibly. They weren't, they weren't just going to take charge of him. I think it's best if you come with us now. No, his family were ticked. They're confused about who Jesus is. There's no way he should be teaching this. There's no way Jesus should be stirring the pot like this healing the people on the Sabbath, doing, getting into these confrontations with religious leaders. Jesus, you need to, he needs to cut this out. I, not Like families, not my family, but families talk. And I can just imagine his brothers, his sisters, talking to his mom. He's, he's making our name even worse. Like, mom, make him stop. So his whole family was ticked. I mean, but this is one of my favorite little chunks that's easy to pass away because this is one of the biggest reasons I follow Jesus. Try this out on your siblings. I dare you to do this. Walk in, say, hey brother, hey sister, I am God incarnate. And then I'd love to know how that goes for you. Even better yet, get popular saying it and see what your family does. Like, it would take a lot to convince your brother or your sister that you are God's son. Now, maybe you've heard me say this before, and, and I do like to say it because I'm hoping there's other people here that are coming to check out Christianity, to check out following Jesus. Maybe you've been invited here, and I want you to consider that, that it would take a lot for your brother or your sister to convince you that they were, that they were God, it would take something like raising from the dead. It would coming back from the dead. It would take something like having these miraculous signs. And all of them that we have accounted for here in the scripture, his brother actually wrote a book of the Bible and became a Jesus follower. I think that's something we, we can't graduate from that. But at this point in the story, they're, they're, they're saying like, hey, hey, you have got to cut this out, Jesus, and they're on the way to get him. So we've got Jesus' family trying to forcibly stop him from what he's doing, and they're on the way. Mama's not happy, but it didn't stop there for Jesus. In verse 22, it says, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, 
By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Okay, wow. That got out of hand quickly. That escalates quickly from your mom and your siblings being upset at you to someone saying that you're possessed by the prince of demons. That escalated quickly. So, in context, like I mentioned before, this is the last of five controversial healings and interactions with the religious leaders. These people that are accusing him of being possessed by Beelzebul, they're already plotting to kill Jesus. The shadow of the cross already in the third chapter of Mark is falling upon, foreshadowing the, the, the later chapters. In the passage before, he's, he's not only healed people, but he's cast out demons. And as the demons leave, they cry out, you are the son of God. Like we see here, that for Jesus, like the, the reality of fighting with the devil, the, the spiritual warfare, as we call it, is a very real thing to him. And he's, he's engaged in it. And it's, it's, it's definitely ruffling feathers, definitely stirring the pot. So family's mad. Religious leaders are, are coming up with these contrived contrived accusations just to, to, to throw some misdirection out there to his new followers who are vulnerable. This, this movement is, is very new at this point. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes here. What would you do at this point? If you were Jesus, what would you do if your family thought you were out of your mind? If you were Jesus, what would you do if your enemies were plotting against you and publicly shaming you you know, saying the only way that, that Jesus had set people free and, and made people whole is that because he's possessed by the devil? Whew, it's a good thing I'm not Jesus. I would make a horrible, horrible Jesus. I would smite them Egyptian style, Egyptian plague style. I mean, I would make a horrible Jesus. But even when I face criticism, this is my journey. It's easy for me to get defensive. When I face criticism, I'm easily tempted to recount the events. Like if I was Jesus, I would, I would get my, my case together and recount the events that had just happened in the previous passages and, and make them all line up. Exhibit A, there was a man in church everyone had forgotten because he was poor. He was in the, the last, you know, the worst seats and I made him stand up and I healed his withered hand. Exhibit B, all these demons leaving are crying out, and they're calling me the son of God. You know, I, it, and I'd make a horrible lawyer anyway, but maybe not if I was Jesus. But Jesus doesn't do this kind of logical thinking in his response. It's important for us to note that he's about to respond with images in these stories called parables. Let's read this chunk together. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, 
People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Strong language, strong response. We've seen Jesus do kind of some, some judo in, in the scriptures and, and turn arguments or, or, or it, not evade, but just... Um, have a different response. This is a very direct response to his critic, using the image of a kingdom that was divided. Keep in mind, he's talking to first century Jews, that, it, that a divided kingdom was part of their, the story of their nation and their people. Ouch! Little, little dig there. A kingdom divided cannot stand. Their, their ancestors would have known the outcome the domino effects of a divided kingdom, a house or a family that's divided, that rips itself apart, it cannot stand. I don't know about you, but everybody's family has, has a story where that threatened them. It's a, a, a conflict or a favoritism or whatever it was. So those are two powerful images. And then he, he reinforces some logic, but with a story, not with a court case, but this, this parable that, that Satan, they all knew, he doesn't mean to help people. Satan, who Jesus called the father of lies, all he does is cause confusion and chaos. And he's saying Satan doesn't drive out Satan. He's using the story to show how illogical the accusation is. And there's a time to directly confront criticism. And there's, a time, there's also a time to let it slide off your back. But Jesus confronted this criticism directly because it was appropriate to do so at that time. But I love, because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a right-brained person. I love stories. I love inner, uh, images and, and word pictures and things like that. Um, and sometimes I can frustrate left-brained people. Sorry to get into brain stuff, but who like logic in step one, step two, step three. But I think it's interesting here that Jesus in his wisdom he knew that especially experts in the law tended to, to go towards that type of thinking. But even more important than neurology or biology, Jesus knew that these folks have made up their mind about Jesus. And that logic or more information wouldn't help at this time. It wouldn't, it wouldn't give them a clue or open their hearts of, of what, towards what Jesus was up to. Man, I think this is interesting for us. When we can tell, how often do we try to convince people through logical argument? Instead of just sharing our story or sharing a, a story that ignites someone else's imagination and maybe sneaks in the back door of their heart to, to have a real story. I have a friend who says if information could change people, there would be no more smoking, <laughs> no more diseases, all these things that we know were bad for us. We have all the information. And information is a good thing, but Jesus is showing how you can use your imagination and use stories and these images, especially with people whose hearts are hardened, especially when it comes to sharing your faith. I know it's so intimidating. You know, in, in the Christian world, it, uh, sometimes it's, well, I met an atheist and, and I tried to, I shared this scripture and that scripture and this scripture and they just wouldn't hear it. Scripture is amazing. 
Scripture is wonderful. We should know it. But to, to someone coming from that worldview, it's information, information, information. And I, I've heard a lot of times where that didn't go like the person planned. On the other hand, I've heard so many times where people started sharing their life, getting to know an atheist story or whatever, someone who wasn't following Jesus, got to know their story, shared why they followed Jesus, shared the, the real life story of their journey. And I know dozens and dozens of stories where maybe not at first, but over time, the other person's heart was softened towards Jesus. And in there, uh, just it mentions, uh, there, there's a scripture in here that scared the living daylights out of me when I was a teenager. I ran across blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And I thought, have I done it? Am I about to do it? Can I blaspheme the Holy Spirit by accident? Jesus is using very strong language here to emphasize a point that these folks who had, had come down in altitude, not going north, but they had come down from Jerusalem, as the scripture said, their hearts were closed to what God was up to in the world. That is turning one of their words around on them. They were blaspheming the Holy Spirit's work that was up to something new in the world, that God's kingdom was right under their noses. And the savior that Israel had been waiting for for generations and generations, they thought would be a political and military leader and, and look a certain way and dress a certain way and associate with certain people. Jesus was messing all that up. And they missed what God was doing. That's what Jesus is talking about. So, you know, my youth pastor told me, if you're scared you've done it, you probably haven't blasphemed the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is specifically talking about their hard hearts and closed minds towards, towards his mission and towards what he was doing. And I also love, which I just came across this not too long ago, the writer of, of a huge chunk of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he calls himself a blasphemer. He had blasphemed. So there's still grace there. Jesus, I know we get hung up on that eternal sin part, but Jesus is using that strong language to emphasize how hard their hearts got. But God's grace is bigger than anything, stronger than anything we can think of. God's grace, as good as you and I can be at messing up, missing the mark, sinning, God's ability to forgive is even better. And we have an example in the Testament, in the New Testament of our scriptures, of how God even melted the heart of a blasphemer and turned him into a church planter and one of the pillars of our faith. So, I've talked about how giving these folks more information at this point wouldn't be helpful and how Jesus took another path. Um, this is such a brilliant aspect of his teaching. But before moving on, I want to deal with the, the strong man parable, the strong man, because I realize that and I'm, um, because of my generation, I'm like, is that a character from He-Man or a 1980s cartoon? Strong man, what's going on there? So Jesus is, is using an example that, that his, his listeners would have been familiar with. In the ancient world, rich people had homes that were built like fortresses. And they had servants that knew how to fight, many of them. And they could, they could become like a small army to protect that wealth if they needed to. And Jesus is using 
this parable to put all of his cards on the table. And it stick with me because this has good news for us today. So just like if in the ancient world, if you wanted to take what that rich person or strong man had and break into his fortress, you would have to go and, and tie him up and defeat all of his servants. Jesus is saying to his, his listeners, this is what I'm here to do. Satan in the parable is the strong man. And Jesus is giving them a hint that he's already been defeated. He's an already defeated foe. Just last ditch grasps for power. That's all Satan can do. But in reality, in the big picture, he's already powerless compared to Jesus, which Mark has already given us a clue for in the beginning where John the Baptist is saying, somebody who's much stronger than I is coming. Jesus is telling them, that's me. And Mark is reminding the readers of Isaiah's words the, who, who prophesied that what the Savior of Israel would be like. In Isaiah 49, 24 and 25, it says, Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives be rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. So Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm here to do this. I'm setting all the things that Satan, all of his plunder, which are keeping people in bondage, death, dysfunction, violence, injustice, all, you can go down the list. He's tied up and I've gotten rid of all of that stuff and I've set his captives free. And so after, after these parables and after these stories, Mark tells us, he said all of this, this is, it, it ties back to the beginning. He said all of this because they were saying he has an impure spirit, simply stating the reason for why Jesus responded like that. Then, mama shows up. I think it's interesting. Mark doesn't record this, but Jesus has already started his ministry, so now he's in his, his early 30s uh, around that time. So we know that when Jesus was around 12, there was that whole story of him being at the temple and, and Mary and Joseph lost track of Jesus and they had to travel back days. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? And they got this clue in where they found him. He was, he was lecturing the religious experts of the day on the Bible. Mary treasured all those things in her heart. This isn't the first time she showed up to Jesus to be like, hey, what's going on? So, mama and the brothers and sisters are there. They're ready to set Jesus straight. In, in verse 31, it tells us, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Ooh! In 2023, even now when I read that, it, it sounds harsh. <laughs> There's some stank on that. But let's think about who was sitting around Jesus. Who was listening? Someone, there's a commotion in the crowd. People stop. Someone whispers in Jesus' ear, your mother and your brothers are here. They start whispering around. Oh, his parents are here. What's going to happen? And Jesus' response is more of a statement than a question. And I can imagine him looking around at the crowd with a twinkle in his eye. 
Who are my mothers and my brothers? Many in those, many people in that room had left everything to follow Jesus. His disciples had left their livelihoods. They'd left, and to follow Jesus, some of them left at the cause of causing great strife in their own families and, and dealing with, yes, there's this euphoria of being with Jesus. At the same time, there's got, there had to be hurts there. There had to be trauma there that didn't just magically get erased. This statement is about comforting those people, saying, yes, you've given up a lot to follow me, but I'm going to give you something that is so much more satisfying. You can never outgive me, is the, the saying that you hear in church sometimes. You can't outgive God. This is a different way of Jesus saying, You've got me. This is the family that, that is, is going to support you. Then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is saying, like, whoa, you guys, this is to bring comfort to those people in the midst of whatever confusion they may have, whatever doubts they may have. This is Jesus ministering to them. And in this passage, I think it's important for us to, to point out again, the spiritual warfare, as it's called, he takes it seriously. And he's told us in his response that he's in control. There's no, there's no, uh, no, no trauma. There's no like uh, timidity. He's got this. He's bound the strong man. He's saying to these folks, like, okay, we're we're gonna face whatever comes at us. We're gonna face it together, no matter what hard times come, no matter what criticisms come. We can face it because we're the family of God. So in this, in this uh, chunk of scripture that we've been reading, what in the world does this mean for us? Well, I've been fascinated with the fact lately that gospel writers, not just Mark, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, often try to get the reader or the original listeners to ask which group they identify with. If you're like me, on first reading, you're like, oh, I identify with Jesus so much. I face such unfair criticism. Oh my goodness, I wasn't checking the soccer scores on my phone. I was looking up our recipe. See what an angel I am? Oh. Or maybe on the second reading, do you identify with Jesus' family? What is God up to? This is not my plan. This is inconvenient for me. People are talking about me. Or maybe on the third or fourth reading, maybe you find yourself identifying with the folks from Jerusalem, with the critics. Oh, there's someone who's following Jesus that doesn't look like me, talk like me, vote like me, dress like me, eat the same way, like there's different, that they're just messing everything up. They, Maybe you read and you find yourself identifying with a different part of the character. That's what the gospel writers love to provoke in us. Or maybe you find yourself identifying with the, the people in that room, that there's something inside of you that like, knows, like there's something that's a massive deal about following Jesus. There's something that resonates so deep 
in my soul and I, I, don't, I don't quite know what it is yet. Maybe there's a, 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 pro, a point of pain in your life, a, a physical thing, a, a emotional thing, a, a relationship trauma where you're like reaching out to Jesus and you're, you're so desperate to be around him. That's what Mark wants us to do, to say, what if, what if we're those people in the story? What if, specifically, what if we're the critics in that story? I've got a couple of questions for you to ponder this week. What work of God have I hardened my heart towards? What people have you set your heart against? And maybe it's not a work of God. Maybe there's just a group of people that tick you off. Those people, that generation, people in that profession. Is there anyone that you've labeled out of their minds? You see something that they write. You see something that they post. You, you hear, overhear something that they say in a coffee shop. And you say, those people are out of your minds. And then, and, and they may be out of their minds. What Jesus is poking at here is the heart's response towards other people. Maybe they are wrong, but let's not cultivate a hardened heart towards people that God created. They may not know Jesus yet, but if we cultivate a hard heart towards unbelievers, people who aren't following Jesus, how are they going to find out about Jesus? How, are they, how will they be made whole? How will they see the light, as they say? So ask yourself, what if God is trying to use those people that are out of their minds to shape your character? Maybe they can teach you. They're not teaching you about God, but God's using them to teach you a lesson, to refine you, to sharpen you. So let's examine our hearts this week and the posture of them, especially when we become angry or indignant with other people. So remember that feeling of being accused of something that you didn't really do? Remember that feeling. Remember that. And let's spend some time asking God to soften our hearts towards who he cares about, what he cares about. I mean, John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world, not just the planet, but like the whole system and everyone in it. I think as we open our hearts to say, Jesus, give me your heart, we'll start following him and maybe face some of the same criticisms. You had lunch with who? You, you had dialogue with who? And that's, that's the kind of heart, that's the kind of person God uses to change neighborhoods, offices, families. So uh, during my research for this, I came across the story that happened in the 1930s. Grandpa talking to his grandson, and he was explaining that, that the word kinfolk, the word kin used to mean something much different than it did in the 1930s. Kinfolk meant blood relatives. But he was saying, oh, it's changed over the years. And now it, it means people that you share DNA with. But back in my day, grandson, it used to mean, mean oh, I kin these people. These, I get them and they get me and we have soft hearts towards each other. And I was thinking, holy, wow, my goodness. We've gotten fewer and fewer kin these days than in the 1930s. 
And we live in a world that's even more polarized and tribal than ever, and we have companies out there and, and industries out there making billions of dollars out of us hardening our hearts, coming with accusations about other people, trying to rip them apart. And we have fewer kin than ever. As we follow Jesus, we can reclaim this original meaning of kin and open our hearts to see all that Jesus has for us. And I don't mean for one single second that we compromise our walk with Jesus or change our theological beliefs or anything like that. I am challenging you and daring you to examine your heart this week in the light of Jesus' teachings and his life example and ask him, what sort of adjustments do you need to make? And as you do that, if you need to process something that happened to you, maybe you're harboring bitterness against somebody, maybe you, you're living in a tension that you just need to, to process a little bit, if you need any of that along the way, you can always reach out to us. Your church family is always here for you at sgbic.com. But let's follow Jesus this week and, and with an open and soft hearts for wherever he may take us. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, would you please um, work on our hearts in this moment? May we never have hard hearts like those critics in the story. May we rest easy knowing that you are in control of all of this and that you have defeated not only the devil, but defeated his plunder, the death, hell, and the grave. Fill us up with hope this week, Lord Jesus and make us a bright, shining light in the darkness. In your name we pray, amen. Love you. I'm so glad that you took time out of your week to worship God with us. And uh, before we dismiss, I wanna say a blessing over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine down upon you. The Lord be gracious to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.